have this uh, kind of like, since we're almost at the end, I have what you call Charles Grodnitis. <laughs> like, I don't want to finish. I don't. Oh, I I'm don't 35. Wanna, <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the end for the vision? See, I don't want to end. I just, I, it's just too, it's too much. It's too much. <laughs> welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And welcome to the end of Joy Division. But why? <laughs> it's part four, ladies and gentlemen. We've had uh, a hell, we've had a hell of a little trip here yes. with the boys. Uh, and this is uh, where it all ends. So with the release of their debut album, Unknown Pleasures, Joy Division had gone from the indignities of being in a band called the Stiff Kittens to being hailed on the cover of Enemy as pioneers of a new sound. And all this happened in just two years' time. But as it goes with higher visibility in the arts, the small fish come biting with the big. And one of the fish nibbling around the edges was a sometime fanzine writer from Belgium named Anique Honoré. Yeah, she was a 21-year-old woman. She uh, she moved uh, to London from Brussels because she was a uh, she was big into the uh, punk new wave scene that we've been talking about for a year. <laughs> she wanted to be closer to all the cool shows that were happening in London, right? So she's like, okay, I'm gonna move myself there, and then she started writing already for a Belgium cultural magazine called En Attendant. <laughs> I don't know why I have to uh, salute every time yeah. I say that. En Attendant. <laughs> And she figured, okay, with that, I'm going to get my press badge and I'm going to go check out Joy Division because she was a big fan of Unknown Pleasures already. So she and a friend went to the Nashville rooms to see them perform on August 13th, 1979. And the live performance grabbed her. It just grabbed her. <laughs> well, that's the thing about Joy Division is that apparently they were uh, a fantastic live band. Yeah. I mean, you could hear you could hear it, especially on Still. It's actually very rocking. Mm -hmm. It's very good. It's not like the depressing thing that you think. So she's standing there. She's like, oh, my God, this is even better than I imagined it would be. So she like ran over to the mixing desk. She found Rob. She's like, hey, I want to interview these guys. They're so good. It looks like they're they're going to be the next big thing. So two weeks later, she set up a whole interview. She met them at their roadie, uh, David Pill's house, the place where the band would crash. <laughs> what? Is that a weird name? His name is David Pills. Yeah, Dave Pills is a weird fucking name. It's the name of a roadie. It's like he was born to be a fucking, oh, Mr. Pills. Yes. Mr. Pills. <laughs> well, he was like, he was another fan who uh, just kind of started like coming along with them. And eventually, since he lived in London, it made sense for them just to crash there yeah. instead of driving back to Manchester every <laughs> night. <laughs> so she turned on the tape recorder with the guys. She spent the next four hours asking them all kinds of questions from like music they like to what kind of horror movies they like to if they believed in love. <laughs> She was new at this. Jesus. She was new at it. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the question that a fanzine writer asks. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite color? <laughs> Which is funny because that I would ask that question too. Uh, what's your favorite color to be in love with? <laughs> Celebrity crush. <laughs> and after a whole night of talking, everyone fell asleep except for Ian and Anique. Mm. And they they put on uh, David Bowie's Low, uh, and they, they just stayed up, and they kept talking all night. And they talked about everything, their personal lives, their families, Ian's epilepsy, marriage, love, death, the existential dread of what is living. <laughs> you know, they had one of those nights. Uh, you and I had one of those nights, too, when we first started dating. But instead, of, I remember, remember yeah, that? Of instead of uh, that. David Bowie, we played the Star Wars disco album. <laughs> 
Well, technically, the Star Wars disco album was the next day when we were having uh, cheese and egg sandwiches that I got from the Yemeni's bodega. Okay, you remember it better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> there was definitely Bowie the night before. When was, we, are yeah. you sure it wasn't uh, Star Wars disco? Uh, uh, <laughs> Star Wars disco was the next morning. Oh, okay. I remember this. This is what I remember this night very well. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Ian and Anique, they had that kind of night, that thing yeah. where you learn everything about the other person and then you let someone in into your life at the same time and you're not tired. You're actually energized. You yeah. stay up all night, that kind of connection. But Ian's married. Yes. Remember, he's married we to Debbie. Married with a child. I know. So it, it, this is the beginning of things getting complicated, but for now, they're just going to keep things a little professional. Mm -hmm. Now it's uh, a crush. Yeah. Now, the relationship with Anique did not start immediately, but that's not to say Ian Curtis was being faithful to wife Debbie. And trying to fulfill some sort of teenage dream of rock stardom, Ian was getting off with groupies wherever he could. He obviously didn't want to be married. He yeah. married too young. Ian's problem, however, was that the medications he had to take to keep his epilepsy at a manageable level made him impotent. But that still didn't stop him from making out with a groupie at the Futurama Festival in Leeds in late 1979, about six months after Unknown Pleasures was released. Billed as the world's first science fiction music festival, I'm talking about Futurama, not the fucking making out with the groupie, <laughs> the three-day event featured goofy lasers, people wandering the grounds dressed as robots, and Johnny Rotten headlining with his more experimental post-Sex Pistols band, Public Image LTV. <laughs> It really Actually. is. <laughs> yeah, I, I, PIL is a, a band that I uh, have always been a little uh, iffy on, but I've got a, a new appreciation for them lately. Mm -hmm. I think it's just because I've been listening to a lot more New Wave. So I'm kind of more in the headspace. Now, obviously, with bands like PIL in the running, post-punk was starting to take off, and Joy Division were getting a piece. Despite being put out on Factory Records, then a small independent label, Unknown Pleasures sold 15,000 copies by the time of the Futurama Festival. Not too shabby. <laughs> no, it's not, not too shabby. <laughs> so, since Joy Division had officially become an established band with a fan base, they embarked on their first proper tour, supporting the Buzzcocks for a round of shows promoting their fellow Mancunian's third album, A Different Kind of Tension. When I pause on my system, my tape falls and twist them into shapes. I'm reaching my idea, and I haven't an idea what to do. I'm painting by numbers, but can't find the colors that fill you in. I'm not even knowing if I'm coming or going, if to end or begin. 
<laughs> can't help it. I'm, I always dance. Always. But, but the thing is, like, you always look stupid dancing when you're sitting. <laughs> so I had to stand in my chair. Anyway, so Ian, Peter, Stephen, and Bernard, they're going on tour. Yeah. Yes, and lucky for them, it's with the Buzzcocks. Remember, they're the ones who gave them the advice. They're the ones who uh, booked them to open for their first gig back yeah. in 1977. So now this is two years later. They have a great album out. They have a manager, Rob, who actually knows what he's doing. And an opening slot for a real tour. Yeah, I mean, this is like uh, your big brother saying, like, you know what, man, you grew up pretty cool. You want to go hang out sometime? <laughs> like, that's that's the feeling. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We're going to go right outside the Burger King. <laughs> and this is also the time that the guys can actually give up their day jobs because they've been using up every sick day possible anyways. And they figured, like, this is the chance. I mean, it's a gamble, but this is a chance. We got to do this. And so the, all they would live on would be, like, the tiny little meager allowance that they got from the band's earnings that Rob would give out to them every week because he would hold the purse strings really strong because these guys were not good with money. <laughs> you, no. I'm going to explain in a little bit how stupidly they spent their little allowance already. <laughs> so so the Buzzcocks tour, right? And Joy Division. 27 dates in five weeks playing almost every night. And it started on October 2nd, 1979 in Liverpool. Mm -hmm. So they get backstage and they see it's not just a gig, but it's like a production. Like, this is a real thing. Yeah. Like, the Buscox road crew were, like, bringing in carts and trolleys full of beer and food, sandwiches, <laughs> dessert, candy, like, piles of clean towels all rolled up in a pyramid, you know? <laughs> Even drugs. The writer. Yeah. <laughs> all, all of that just being carted straight into the Buscox dressing room. <laughs> now, oh, okay. Well, maybe our cart must be in our dressing room. <laughs> yeah, they're still the opening band at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, so they go to their dressing room and of course there's like a few plastic chairs uh, some wire coat hangers <laughs> and, ah, a mirror uh so okay well that's what we got but that's okay because we're friends with the buzzcocks we're gonna go into their dressing room and we can get some snacks and beers and say hi to our old friends who we haven't seen in a year obviously this is some sort of oversight <laughs> <laughs> we'll settle this out don't i don't want to get anyone in trouble but <laughs> and as soon as the guys walk up to the dressing room door this guy yells at them where do you think you're going <laughs> and that guy was the buzzcocks bodyguard Sarge. Ah, uh, Sarge. Now, yes, Sarge, he's, he is legendary. <laughs> huge guy, like thick chains around his neck, like tattoos all over his arms. He'd been in the Hell's Angels, and not just in the Hell's Angels, but the sergeant at arms for the Hell's Angels, hence the nickname Sarge right. being the enforcer for the Hell's Angels. Jesus. Can you imagine that? <laughs> So obviously he was a tough motherfucker and he didn't put up with any crap. Yeah, you and this is 1970s Hell's Angels. Exactly. <laughs> like this, this is not like modern weekend warrior type bullshit. Like this is when Hell's Angels were truly dangerous. And that's why, I, that's why it's insane that Bernard went up to be like, I, I got this, don't yeah. worry. <laughs> yeah, it's not the clubhouse over in the East Village where people are like, they're too loud. Like, <laughs> no, this is like fucking beat you to death, Hell's Angels. And so the four kids walk up there and like, but we know them and he's like no and like but they're our friends can we at least come in and say hi for a second it's like no and he's like you know he crosses his arms and his arms are like a foot above their heads <laughs> so they're like okay this is we're just not this is not gonna work yeah but when it came to the show though especially the first show joy division killed it yeah. they killed it 
almost every night. They won over the audience easily, and they would even do encores for an opening band. Like, they loved being the support band because of that. I mean, they didn't feel the pressure of having to fill the room. And once they finished their set, they could start drinking and meeting girls as early as 9 p.m. <laughs> It's a great tour. <laughs> yeah, they had a fucking great time. But, you know, even though the performances were great, uh, and even though the mood of the tour was jovial, as was befitting a bunch of punks in their early 20s, remember Ian Curtis still had some pretty fucking bad health problems, and they only got worse specifically because he was on a punk tour with a bunch of carefree dudes in their early 20s. Now, anyone who's ever been to a rock show knows that flashing lights are just a part of the package. And anyone who has even the smallest bit of general knowledge knows that flashing lights are among the top environmental triggers for epileptic fits. That meant that Ian Curtis was particularly ill-suited to be the lead singer of a rock band in a time and place where sensitivities to maladies were not necessarily what you'd call at an all-time high. No. Even with Rob Gretton getting into arguments with the lighting technicians at damn near every show to the point where he'd camp out in the booth, the lighting technicians still sometimes either ignored Rob's no-strobe request or just plain forgot. The one positive was that Joy Division eventually settled into a brownish, steady wash for their live show look, which became an appropriate visual trademark for the band. The downside was that Ian's onstage fits were becoming even more common. In Leeds, the second date of the tour, the technician ignored Rob's directives, coincidentally during She's Lost Control. Ian's onstage fit was so awful that he had to be carried off stage, and Peter, who had to hold him down, thought he'd die then and there. But since Ian never wanted to bother anyone, and because he never wanted to upset anyone, and because everyone was finally getting what they wanted, they'd all quit their day jobs, they're on tour, the album's doing well, he pressed on night after night, regardless of how bad the seizures got. But at the same time, the Buzzcocks tour still involved two young bands riding high on success, or at least relative success. And things got fucking disgusting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In a way that, like, the well, damned don't even hold a fucking candle to this shit. Yeah, well, I mean, if you go on tour and things never get disgusting, did you go on tour at all? <laughs> Really? <laughs> okay, if you get went on tour in your early twenties, if things didn't, didn't <laughs> yes. get disgusting, when you like for me going on tour in mid to late thirties, if things get disgusting, we're gonna have a talk. <laughs> <laughs> so the guys in Joy Division, right? They they made fast friends with Sarge. They finally got friendly with Sarge, <laughs> mostly maybe just to get into the dressing room. <laughs> and Sarge, get those sandwiches somehow. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and Sarge would tell them about like these weird initiation rituals that the Hells Angels used to do, like making the new guy drink a pint of urine. And the guys were like, ew, that's so gross. Did you have to do that? And Sarge is like, yeah, everyone had to do that. And he's like, all right, show us that. <laughs> and Sarge said, fine, I'll do it for five pounds. Just get me some piss. <laughs> So the guys, I mean, obviously, the, getting the urine was easy. Yeah, obviously. That, that's obviously easy. They're yes. drunk at the hotel bar. <laughs> yeah, the world is in no shortage of urine. But it was the five pounds that wasn't so easy to get. So immediately, all four guys just fan out, looking around like coat pockets or the crew, roadies, anyone who had any money at all. I think they even went up to Rob and they're like, hey, can we have five pounds from the band's money? And Rob's all like, what for? And they're like... It's band related. 
<laughs> a I'm story. Sh- I'm sure like Steven was like, oh, we just want to see Sarge drink a pint of piss. <laughs> and, okay, yeah, why not? Yeah. Uh, so the guys get the pint glass and, 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 and pee into it, hand it to Sarge. This is all happening at the hotel bar in Scotland, <laughs> by the way. Somehow no one is throwing these guys out whatsoever. You've been to a pub in England. You know how these things go. <laughs> no one is noticing that. Okay. But then Sarge ups it to 10 pounds because the piss is warm. (laughs) Like, I don't know what he expected. He gets the money. Sarge grabs the warm and thick and apparently brown piss and swallows every bit of it, slams the pint on the table and says, all right, I'll eat a shit sandwich for 20 pounds. (laughs) Whoa, we got to get some bread. (laughs) So they run through the hotel. They empty out the food carts. They trash the whole area. They can't find any bread. They're so (laughs) drunk. So they're like, okay, shucks, whatever. Let's just go back to the hotel bar. And by the time they get back, the hotel staff closed the bar, pulled the shutters down. And they're like, what? what, what? How did they close? Like, like it's only let me check oh it's only 5 a.m for christ's sake so but that doesn't mean the party has to end no of course not one of the buscocks roadies broke apart the shutters and they all go running in like Woo! <laughs> <laughs> they steal all the liquor bottles all the beer bottles pilfering whatever they can find have a big party go back to their hotel rooms and crash just falling on their beds with their shoes kind of thing well what happened to the shit sandwich they forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God they forgot. So the next morning, a few hours later, really, Rob bursts into the rooms and screams like, you got to leave now. <laughs> the, whole st- the hotel staff knew it was you guys who trashed the whole place and, and they called the cops and they're on their way right now. Who else was it going to be? <laughs> <I know. laughs> oh, the kids who were drinking piss in the bar last night. Gee, I wonder if they were the ones who stole all the liquor. I don't know. Maybe we should do an investigation first. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, this is in Scotland. Yeah. Remember that? <laughs> so... Ian, Bernard, Peter, and Stephen just jump out of bed. They start stuffing clothes into her bags, grabbing as much stuff as they can. Whatever is not bolted down. At this point, might as well steal like the stationery <laughs> and the, the books, whatever they have out there. And then they just get out of there just in time. And the Buscocks managers had to sort it all out and make sure the hotel got paid for all the alcohol, all uh. the damages, while Joy Division just got to peel out of there in their <laughs> van and head over to Edinburgh to their next gig quiz. No way could they get arrested and miss it. No. So, yes, there were a couple disgusting times. <laughs> but mixed in with all the revolting antics were encounters with true artists who were even more flawed than Ian Curtis. In Brussels, the band had an encounter with writer William S. Burroughs, who would dip his toe into the music world himself in 1993, collaborating with Tom Waits on his album, The Black Rider. When you hear sweet syncopation and the music softly moan, it ain't no sin to take off your skin and dance around in your bones. When it gets too hot for comfort and you can't get ice cream cones, it ain't no sin to take off your skin and dance around in your bones. That's a cover. 
Yeah. <laughs> a, a cover from a song from 1929. Oh, wow. You know, like one of those like really like high energy, like, ain't no sound to dance around. Hello, my dance darling. Dance around Hello, in your... Hello, my good time. Dance yeah. around in your balls. <laughs> like that was, it was one of those songs. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a whole thing with William S. Burroughs and Tom Waits and the Black Rider, but this isn't a Tom Waits episode. Now, there are some who peg William Burroughs as the true godfather of punk, at least in artistic terms. And Ian Curtis was just as big of a fanboy for Burroughs as most of the more well-read punks were. In fact, Curtis lifted the title for the song Interzone from something Burroughs wrote. As such, when Joy Division played outside of the UK for the very first time while on a break from the Buzzcocks tour, Ian was delighted when Joy Division and Cabaret Voltaire performed at a former sugar beet factory in Belgium where Burroughs was also set to read from his recently published book, The Third Mind. This is a weird odd of events, like <laughs> turn of events that gets you to this point. This is like something that like our buddy Ragnar would like talk about. Like, oh yes, I did that one in, in tw- when I was twenty three. It was no big deal. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, just like flipping. Now this was during one of Burroughs' many heroin junkie periods, so that might have somewhat explained his behavior. Because by all accounts, Burroughs was almost old world in his manners towards fans. Legend has it, though, that after Burroughs did his reading, Ian Curtis approached him looking for a free copy of The Third Mind while Peter and Bernard waited from a distance. But even though Peter and Bernard didn't hear the conversation, Peter did say that after Ian asked for the book, he distinctly heard Burroughs say, Oh, fuck off, kid. (laughs) But you have so many. (laughs) So many right in front of you. And supposedly for the rest of the night, every one of Ian's friends took turns growling, Oh, fuck off, kid. Like straight (laughs) at Ian, who was embarrassed, so embarrassed, and got hammered. Then Joy Division's Rody 20, who was also hammered, raided the Sugar Beet Factory's bar. He stacked the band's van full of stolen beer so much that Joy Division couldn't load their instruments in the back. Where would we put the equipment? I don't know. I didn't think that far. It was only after the band made him put it all back that they were able to load their gear and return to the youth hostel where they were staying. Others, however, dispute the fuck off story. Richard Kirk of Cabaret Voltaire said that Ian Curtis instead awkwardly asked Burroughs what he thought of suicide. Now, Ian was talking about suicide, the band, but Burroughs thought Ian was talking about suicide, the act. Burroughs said he disapproved, and that was that. Yeah, that's always awkward. I, I know in context, because when we did the suicide series, uh, my to-do list was always like suicide notes. <laughs> right? Suicide notes. You know, order from Chewy.com. Do laundry. So I can understand how that looks weird in context. Uh, by this point in the band's history, Ian Curtis was moving towards a, let's say, sophisticated existence. He wanted the type of life where talking to William Burroughs in an abandoned sugar beet factory in Belgium was the norm and not the exception. But the rest of Joy Division were still working-class boys from Salford with working-class senses of humor, and their inability to be anything different tended to embarrass Ian with fair regularity. That would happen sometimes. It would happen. Even though Ian wasn't quite as intellectual as he made himself out to be. Uh, He he was was on his way there. He was on his way there. He was trying real hard. Yeah, I mean, as much as Ian would join in for stuff like watching a big guy drinking someone's urine. (laughs) Or fun night. Or or like, you know, the time when uh, Terry Mason found like a big turd in the (laughs) toilet bowl and it looked like a bunch of, he said it looked like a pile of Swiss rolls. And he called, hey, everybody, look at you guys. 
this. Like Ian was right there with him. Like Laughing he was laughing. Yeah, he, <laughs> he was, was in also, line. Yeah, <laughs> come in. Yeah, step up right up. Yeah, yeah. Ian cursed still. When someone said, "Come look at the big turd," Ian came and laughed just as hard. Yes, he did. But he was also into the more cerebral kinds of things. And I think uh, with that, you know, he had many sides to him. And uh, reading a lot of books on like uh, Dostoevsky and Sartre and things like that, like maybe with with his band, he didn't have a lot of chances to talk about that with. Yeah. So he really enjoyed finding like-minded people that he could talk to about that kind of stuff, like books and art, kind of like how he made that connection with Anique and with Genesis from uh, Throbbing Gristle. You know, he really enjoyed like how they were like very experimental out there, uncompromising music or art noise, you want to call it? Yeah, yeah. Throbbing Gristle, of course, uh, one of the uh, experimental bands back then uh, that were pretty big or at least big in the experiment scene let's, let's listen to a throbbing gristle track I am one of the injured a tearless flesh dissolving like an injured dog like wasted limbs get smaller Pain is a stimulus of pain. But then, of course, nothing is cured. This is the world now. Move a fin and the world turns. Sit in a chair and pictures change. Try to eat us. Or injured. I, I mean, okay, so I mean, Throbbing Gristle is like cool, but yeah. like capital C, like cool. Right. It's <laughs> it's too cool. Like it's just it's just too cool. I mean, it's like uh, it's like suicide if you removed all the charm. Yeah. You know, or like it's because throbbing gristle, I've tried a million times to get in a throbbing gristle, and I'm just, I don't know. I, I've, I've decided uh, I'm going to stop pretending to get in a throbbing gristle. All right. Like, yeah. I <laughs> I'm, agree. I'm done. I can't do it. I just can't, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, all my record store friends. I'm sorry. It's totally fine. It's a lot of it is very unlistenable. You're not, it is. You're not wrong. But, you know, it's just not fun. I just don't have any fun. Okay. Okay. So Ian, well, Ian started exchanging letters with uh, Genesis from Throbbing Gristle and even inviting them to see the band play on the Buscocks tour. So funny thing is, though, at that show, the show that he invited uh, Genesis, uh, that right before Joe Division was going to go on, Stephen was like getting ready for the show because it was going to be a big show. It's going to be packed. And he was like going through his bag and he only found like one clean shirt. And it was a really bright red Frank Zappa shirt, like the, the kind with that with the flared sleeves, like mm-hmm. all hippie style. And he's just like, <laughs> this is the only thing I got left. And Bernard saw it and said, like, that looks stupid. <laughs> I'll wear it on stage for 10 pounds because. <laughs> 
This is what they did all the time with their money. Yeah. It's insane. So Bernard's just paying other people to do stupid shit. Yes. Bernard's like, I'm going to wear this on stage the whole show. And so they're like, okay, you're on. So Bernard puts on the shirt and they try to think of like more ridiculous things to put on him, you know? So Steven and Rob crush up beer cans and tie it to like Bernard's shoes. All right. So they're like, Bernard, you got to perform the whole set with this shirt on and these beer can platforms and act like that's your real outfit. Okay. Be real serious about it. And as they were futzing around with Bernard's shoes, Ian walks into the dressing room with Genesis, opens the door, is like, I'd like you to meet my band. <laughs> and Steve and Rob and Bernard just kind of look up <laughs> like a deer in headlights. They're like, oh, hey, Ian. Oh, Bernard's wearing this tonight for 10 bucks. <laughs> Do you want to get in on it? <laughs> it's just like things like that would always embarrass Ian all the time. Of but- course. And also like Genesis Porridge is just one of those people that I don't think I ever saw her smile in one single interview. Uh, she always took herself very, very seriously. I think died from taking herself way too fucking seriously. Uh, and also had a a lot of allegations. Yes, a very problematic. Yeah. I heard. Uh, <laughs> yeah, some pretty fucking awful allegations uh, throughout the, the years. Um, so She passed away this past year, actually. This yeah. Year, re- very recently. So. Very recently, yeah. Uh, but in other words, I would much rather hang out with uh, the guys that are like making the goofy boop boop robot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> boop boop robot outfit to laugh at their friend on stage. That's who I would rather hang out with. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) me too. (laughs) This episode of No Dogs in Space is brought to you by ExpressVPN. There are tons of VPN providers out there. Some of them you've probably heard of, maybe even used, but nothing compares to ExpressVPN. First, ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. Lots of really cheap or free VPNs cut costs by selling your data to ad companies. Not ExpressVPN though, they developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. And not only is ExpressVPN safe, it's fast. Some VPNs make your device sluggish, but with ExpressVPN, your internet speeds are blazing fast. Even when you connect to servers thousands of miles away, you can still stream HD quality videos with zero lag. The last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from other VPNs is how easy it is to use. You don't gotta input or program nothing. You just fire up the app and click one button to connect. It's so easy, even old people can use it. And it's not just me saying this. Wired, The Verge, CNET, and many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with a VPN that you can trust. Use our link expressvpn.com slash no dogs today and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash no dogs. Visit expressvpn.com slash no dogs to learn more. Now Joy Division, right in the middle of their tour with the Buzzcocks, paused in October of 1979 to record a single featuring two of their best songs at Cargo Studios and where else but Manchester. The B-side to the single was an exploration of reincarnation that the band were using as their opener at live shows. The vocals didn't kick in for a full two minutes, but Ian used that time to test the temperature of the room before launching into that night's performance. The thermometer, as it were, was Dead Souls.
Okay, if you really want to practice your Ian Curtis dance, practice it on Dead Souls before you fucking launch into trying to do it during transmission. <laughs> That's great advice. Yeah, I don't want you to hurt yourself. Ah, oh, gotcha, gotcha. The A-side to this single, however, was a beautiful, sweeping study in disintegration, now considered one of, if not the greatest goth track ever recorded. And I know we're going to get some emails about that one. That song, which will always and forever be played in documentaries and movies when they get to the part where they talk about Ian Curtis's death, was Atmosphere. This is not my line, but I read it somewhere online where someone's like, this is the most human song I've ever heard. Yeah. And it, it really is. I mean, it's just it's just so beautiful. And, you know, Bernard uh, and actually the way they wrote this song is actually came from two different ideas. Like Peter and Steven, they came up with the bass and drums for the song that they were going to call Chance. And the keyboards and vocals were another idea that they were working on for something else. And then they just kind of like put them together and they called it Atmosphere. And boom, there it is. Yeah. You know, and then unfortunately popular song to play at funerals <laughs> yeah of course it Even is peter said like <laughs> played this at my funeral <laughs> oh god and thankfully we didn't have to uh, go through uh bernard's funeral this year because he got covid he got covid and survived yes yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Thankfully, no, he's a healthy young man yes he older is older man <laughs> No, Atmosphere is uh, an absolutely, it's a gorgeous song. I mean, you can't really say enough uh, about Atmosphere. And the fact that they wrote it so fast, uh, that's the way Joy Division did everything. I mean, in I think it's two years, they recorded 43 songs in outstanding output. And almost all of them, uh, according to the band, were easy. They just came. Yeah. Now, those two songs... Despite Ian Curtis's shaky vocals on Atmosphere, are obviously classics. But once again, Joy Division shot themselves in the foot trying to be clever. Firstly, the single released as Licht und Blindheit was released only in France. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, super cool that way. Only the cool people know about it. Furthermore, only 1,578 copies of the single were printed, and most of those were handed out for free by Rob Gretton. And because of those two ill-advised decisions, 
nobody could get a hold of these fantastic songs when they were first released. I know. <laughs> but it's because Throbbing Gristle, you know, had... A, uh. a, yes, they had... A, <laughs> six months earlier, they released, like, a, a, an EP as well. And so they were like, well, we want to also be as cool as that. But the thing is, Throbbing Gristle, like, released a couple songs that you could just, like, just throw away if you wanted to. Yeah. But instead, they put the best song they've ever written <laughs> on a tiny little EP. <laughs> <laughs> but John Peel ended up saving the day, at least for his listeners. Knowing that nobody in England could buy the single and knowing how good these songs were, John Peel gave advance notice that the songs were coming later on in his set so people at home could tape them and finally listen at their own convenience. So once Joy Division laid down Dead Souls and Atmosphere, they rejoined the Buzzcocks on tour for a show at Bournemouth. Because remember, they did those songs in the middle of a tour. Yes. <laughs> no, they were never stopping. And in that show in Bournemouth, the set was cut short when Ian Curtis had a fit from exhaustion. This one lasted an hour and a half, and Peter had to physically hold Ian's tongue to keep him from swallowing it. It was actually so terrible that Twenty the roadie hid in a cupboard because he sincerely believed Ian was possessed by the devil. But still, Joy Division pressed on. Ian got no rest ate awful food, got drunk night after night, and never stayed in the same place for more than 24 hours. In other words, Ian was doing the exact opposite of what he should have been doing, and the consequences were on the way. But even so, the tour still ended with a small personal victory for Joy Division. See, Joy Division and the Buzzcocks have been trading innocent pranks all tour. Just like, oh, yeah, you put a bucket on the door. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but on the last show, Joy Division took it way beyond what any of them had done up to that point. Well, it's because of Buzzcocks. They said like, oh, we got to warn you guys. Uh, you know, we like to prank the opening act on the last night of the tour. Well, we're going to get you fuckers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like that. It's a fun thing we do around here. We're a wild bunch. We are. <laughs> we're like one big happy family. So Stephen, Bernard, Peter, and Ian came up with a prank of their own that involved a few trips to the store. <laughs> they had to get 10 pounds of maggots, 10 cans of shaving cream, 12 live mice, and five dozen eggs. <laughs> they spent their money on that. I can't stress this enough. <laughs> okay, so so now they're at their last show on tour, and that was in London at the Rainbow Theater on November 10th, 1979, our wedding anniversary, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joy Division went on and played their set and actually they did pretty well they walked off stage feeling pretty good and the guys were like I guess they forgot about the prank you know what happened to the prank and Steven said oh actually uh, the Buzzcocks did the prank uh, they put talcum powder on my snare drum so when I hit it a cloud of powder went up and that was it. <laughs> yeah, we got you, you fuckers. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and apparently they also took out the battery out of Steven's uh, drum synthesizer that he used for She's Lost Control. And the guy's like, but we didn't play She's Lost Control. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Damn those wild buzz cocks. Oh, man, they took away our dink dink. <laughs> <laughs> so... Joy Division decided they went a more disgusting route. <laughs> they dumped 10 pounds of maggots all over the Buscock's equipment, like the amps, the mixing desk. There were even maggots climbing up their backdrop as they were playing and falling onto the drummer's hair and down his back. They had to finish the sets with maggots crawling everywhere. 
<laughs> and at the end of the show, you know, both bands, Joy Division and the Buzzcocks, they had a good laugh. All right, all right, you really did get us. Oh, man, let's have this little hangout after party thing because it's the last night. And then the Buzzcocks and their crew decided to call it a night and head to the hotel. But wait, there's more. <laughs> you see, earlier in the night, while the Buzzcocks were on stage dealing with the maggots, <laughs> the guys snuck over to the Buzzcocks tour buses. They had two, one for the band and their girlfriends and the other one for the crew. So Stephen, Ian, Peter, Bernard, and probably Terry <laughs> pried the windows of the bus open and dumped six mice into each bus. Then they finished off by spraying shaving cream all over the windshield, the door handle, all the windows. Yeah, classic stuff. Yes, and yeah. then the guys huddled together. Okay, here's the plan. The buscocks will come out and they see all the shaving cream and think, oh, haha, guys, very funny. But then they'll walk in and start freaking out over the mice and run out of the bus screaming. Yeah. And then that's when we come in. We'll hide in our car. And once they run out, we'll jump out. We'll pelt them with five dozen eggs we bought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good plan. Good plan. Team Joy Division. Team Joy Division. <laughs> so at the very end of the night, they watch as the buscocks come out and see all the shaving cream all over. You know, someone tries to turn on the windshield wipers and it makes it worse. Yeah. Oh, funny oh, guys. God, yeah. Oh, okay. They clean it up a little bit. They get in the tour bus. And now here's our moment. Get the eggs. And then the bus just drives off, <laughs> leaving the band alone in the parking lot. What? What? They were supposed to. Mm. They, oh, wait. It's okay. They 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 screwed up that time. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're just totally gone. But the buscocks crew were still coming out, so they're like, okay, we still have a chance. So the crew walk into the bus and they absolutely notice the mice and they start running out screaming like rats, rats, rats. <laughs> so finally, the guys jump out of Steven's car and pelt them with eggs, and they're all laughing like ha suckers. And they turn around. There's some cops there, like oh shit. <laughs> um, they had to sort that out for a little bit. Yeah. And you see, the thing is, the guys in the buscocks, the guys in the band, they actually never noticed the mice in the bus they got on the bus and then they got off the bus and into the hotel totally fine <laughs> not even noticing except that sarge noticed it while riding in the bus with them he saw like a little mouse like climb into one of their girlfriend's bags and was like oh shit <laughs> so he waited until they left he grabbed the mice like right in the hotel parking lot and just threw them out of the bus hard against the wall I think oh. he might have killed them just yeah. throwing one after another while hotel guests were walking in and out <laughs> seeing a tour bus that says buscocks on it and then mice just being thrown out of it just, oh. just oh yeah don't count on a former hell's angel sergeant at arms to have compassion for the little mice you know what it actually pissed off joy division <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want to see them harmed. <laughs> well, I think this whole prank, like, it, it really does say something about Joy Division uh, and their fucking work ethic. Uh, because, you know, like, just from the Buzzcock saying, like, yeah, we're really going to get you. They went so far beyond what they had to do. Just the maggots alone would have been fine. I know. it's That's the thing. You put them together and they make magic. <laughs> Well, they, I mean, they have standards, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You're right. Well, you know, like Joy Division, I mean, even though Ian Curtis's health was in steady decline, they had arrived. I mean, by the end of the tour, like you said, you know, the audiences were requesting encores from Joy Division, even though they were the opening band. That never happens. And the crowd would actually boo when Joy Division left the stage after only half an hour. They wanted Joy Division so much more than they wanted the Buzzcocks, even though this would have been a fantastic time to see both bands. 
but spurred on by the positive reception, Joy Division returned to the road just two months later, setting off on a 10-date, 11-day tour of Europe, broke, cold, and starving in a minibus. It was also on this tour that Anique joined Ian Curtis for the first time, proving to be a bit of a downer to the rest of the boys throughout the tour, even though she was still well-liked for the most part. Yeah, I mean, she was a cute girl with an accent. I yeah. mean, <laughs> these guys are not going to be mean to her, to her face. No, 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 no. Well, from what Peter said, Anique wanted to spend time with well-mannered gentleman artists, as opposed to the flatulent man-children that made up the majority of Joy Division. Yeah. But as these things usually go, Anique's judgmental nature eventually backfired. In Antwerp, Belgium, the band's sleeping arrangements fell through, and the only place the promoter could find for lodging was a local brothel, complete with red lights, erotic paintings, and special furniture. What does that mean? Vibrating beds, uh, things that look like dildos and could be used as dildos, but aren't actually dildos. (laughs) (laughs) Protrusions. Confusion is that? (laughs) This door stuff's not working well. (laughs) The whole band, including Ian, saw the humor in the situation. But Anique, perhaps because she was Belgian, freaked out and refused to stay there. She called Rob Gretton immoral for agreeing to the arrangement. Now, Rob Gretton was famously hot-headed. And when Anique called him immoral, he shot right back saying, I'm not the one fucking a married man with a kid. Ooh. (laughs) Ah, ah. I mean, this wasn't strictly true because Ian couldn't actually have sex because of his medication, but that cut deep. But they were still having an affair. They was still, oh, of course it was an affair. in so many ways. Yeah, Yeah. at this point, it's it's just been heating up to the point where it's like, now we'll stay together. Yes. At least on tour. They were heavily involved with each other, and it was playing hell with Ian Curtis's mind. But like, yeah. it was playing hell with his emotions. He should not have been doing this. Well, they were going back and forth on that, especially her. I mean, when they would write their letters to each other throughout these few months when he was on tour with the Buscox and then recording and then later for the European tour, uh, there was a lot of back and forth on that. Mm-hmm. There definitely was. But when they were together, they were together. Yes, they were absolutely together. But as it went with all of Joy Division's tours, and frankly, the last part of Joy Division's history, there were plenty of fuck-ups from the instrumentalists to go along with the continuing tragedy of Ian Curtis. In Cologne, drummer Stephen Morris was on the hunt for some speed for a bit of mid-tour pep, (laughs) but instead ended up getting a hold of a fair amount of acid. Well... (laughs) (laughs) A fair amount, I'd say. Okay, so Steve, like, he was... Asking around on tour because he's like, we're finally headlining. This is great. We're playing more than 30 minutes. It's like 15 songs right now. And if you can hear the drums, it is exhausting. Yeah. So he kept asking around if he can get some uh, speed. And everyone's like, no, we only got cocaine. And he's like, no, that's (laughs) a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, But it wasn't until Germany, actually, in Cologne, that finally he got his hands on something. <laughs> it was there that one of the band's roadies, remember David Pills? Now I remember David Pills. Yeah, Dave Pills is the guy you send to go out and get you drugs. He managed to get some. <laughs> <laughs> he ran over backstage. He handed it over to Steven. And it, it was like something that was like, like it was a bright red five-pointed star, right? And it, But it was really small and it looked really weird to Steven. And he's like, are you sure this is speed? And David said like, yeah, of course. I got it from the door guy right here. So they're like, okay, so Steven takes the pill and tells David right before they were going to go on stage to play, see if that door guy has any more because that pill is way too small from what I'm used to. Mm-hmm. And so David's like, all right, sure, boss. So 
they go on stage. The gig went great, except for the sound. Unfortunately, it was particularly bad that night. Uh, tons of feedback. A lot of, uh, you know, Terry, who was at the mixing desk, was like, can you please turn it up, Terry? <laughs> but Steven still played his heart out, and he came off stage, like, dripping with sweat. But he still didn't feel anything from that speed. So he's like, okay, whatever. It just was crap. So they all head over to the house they were staying at that night. Uh, one of the promoter's friends volunteered to host them at his house. Some German hippie guy. Mm -hmm. So as they're hanging out in the living room with a host who's graciously letting them stay there, you know, they're listening to some music, having a drink. Steven says, how come your drugs here are so shitty? <laughs> <laughs> and the German hippie guy just kind of like, I don't know. Drugs are pretty good here. Here, I'll roll us a spliff. And we can hang out and smoke some pot. And Steven's like, okay, but shouldn't you be worried about your ears? And he's like, what ears? Your ears, they're growing. <laughs> and your hair is vibrating. Why is your hair vibrating? Are you? <laughs> he started, because that's what happened. Every color, every texture started to get very vibrant. Yeah. And Steven started to look around like, holy crap. So Steven explains to the German guy that he took a red star pill earlier that night. And the host goes, Oh, yeah, Red Star. It's acid fund. <laughs> and Steven says, yeah, it's definitely acid, but I don't know how much fun it is. <laughs> the room is incredibly bright right now. Eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf. And the German guy goes, no, acid fund. And he held up his hand to show five <laughs> fingers, fünf. Uh, you see oh, God. Here? Uh, if you look, you see ein, one, zwei, two, drei, three. Fear four, four, five. Are you telling me? I took. Yeah, it's five. It's five. Five, <laughs> five tabs of acid at once. Okay, so Stephen goes over to the guys because he's like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> I, I, apparently, I was supposed to share with the band. <laughs> I didn't know. So Stephen goes over to. The, he's like, "Hey, Bernard, Peter, I accidentally took five tabs of acid. <laughs> I might need some help right now." And they go, ah! And they just, they actually took it more as a chance to just prank him more. <laughs> it was a bad idea to even bring it up, really, because they kept messing with Steven all night, including making him climb up a ladder to the mezzanine area where the beds were and just poking him, watching him as he's like holding onto the ladder, be like, I can't, I'm gonna fall, I can't do this. And he's like, what, two feet off the ground? <laughs> they're just watching him and just laughing. And Steven was just not happy and he kept yelling things like I'm gonna kill you guys for messing with me but then it started getting darker and darker like I'm gonna get an axe and chop you into little pieces mm. and then find a suitcase <laughs> and then get an alibi <laughs> it was enough for Bernard to say I'm gonna go sleep somewhere else <laughs> it took the ladder away actually leaving Steven up there <laughs> while Steven's like battling like glowing lights and orbs <laughs> he's just trying to swat them with his hands and the inevitable uh, psychological meltdown that's yeah. about to come <laughs> <laughs> Steven said it took about two to three days for the drugs to wear off, and he's not even sure if it really did completely. <laughs> oh, well. And for those next couple of days on the road in Germany, he was able to play just fine, but he mostly kept quiet. He was mostly, like, keeping to himself, and he freaked out Bernard sometimes because they would all be in the van heading to the next place. And Bernard, you know, when you notice that creepy feeling and, you know, someone's looking at you. So Bernard would just turn around and look back and see Steven's piercing eyes <laughs> looking deep into Bernard's soul, not moving an inch or even saying a word. And Bernard just turning around like, how? <laughs> 
He did that several times for the next couple of days. But hey, good times. Yeah, good, good times. times. Yeah. Peter said he didn't say a word for three days. <laughs> and Steven said he hasn't completely forgiven them yet. <laughs> now, since Ian didn't want to miss out on fun shit like Steven almost pulling a said Barrett. Ian continued the lifestyle, which resulted in more seizures. During one show, he froze mid-strum on his guitar, and in another, he fell into Stephen's drum kit and thrashed about until all the cymbals and toms were just scattered all over the stage. All this was highly embarrassing to Ian because he never knew how the audience would react. At best, they'd just be scared for him. At worst, they'd laugh or cheer. But after every fit, he'd still get up, dust himself off, and carry on. But just because Ian Curtis suffered did not mean that Ian Curtis was a saint. He was emotionally abusive towards his wife, Debbie, and sometimes physically intimidating, all while he talked constantly with his bandmates about how awful married life was. Eventually, Debbie discovered the affair between Anique and Ian and understandably smashed Ian's beloved copy of Bowie's Low in retaliation. Ian promised he'd break it off with Anique, but the emotional affair only grew over the coming year. Ian continued writing letters to Anik about the obligations and responsibilities he no longer wanted, along with his justified fears that his epilepsy was only getting worse. Because that's, I mean, I of course, this is all speculation, but I think had the epilepsy not been a factor in all this, uh, I think Ian Curtis would have been able to deal with his personal life a, yeah. li- a little bit better. A, maybe maybe a little bit le- better. It's hard to speculate here, but... Of course. Maybe, and it's easy to judge him. Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, if anything, it would have been... Obviously, it would have been better to see him grow up and realize his mistakes are all the mistakes people make when they're younger. Yeah, of course. And it was all getting to be too much. And the night Ian returned from Joy Division's European tour, his worsening mental breakdown became externalized. Yeah, Ian came home from tour, and when he came home, he practically just passed by Debbie as he was walking in. You know, it was bad enough that he didn't even say goodbye to her when he left, uh, which crushed Debbie, but she was on her way to work when he was coming back, and she already dropped off the baby at her parents, and she's like, you know what, I gotta go to work, I'll deal with this when I get home. So sometime after midnight, Debbie gets home from work and she finds Ian on the floor, passed out, drunk. Ian had drunk a whole bottle of Pernod, which is a French liqueur. Mm. Uh, I know. It's it's an interesting choice. (laughs) Ian then wakes up a little bit and starts throwing up all over the carpet. And Debbie was just super annoyed with the whole thing and just told him, like, to clean it up himself. So Ian gets up and he does what she says. But then she notices red marks all over his arms and, and around his body. And once Ian got into bed, Debbie went back downstairs and she found the knife he used to harm himself and the Bible that was open to chapter two of the book of Revelation, where it talks about a woman named Jezebel who needed to be punished after several warnings from God about shameless acts of fornication and worshiping false idols and, you know, and whether literal or not committing adultery. Yeah. Uh, So she at the when she saw that, she thought that maybe he was worried about but maybe that she was going out with someone else while he was on tour. She wasn't sure exactly what that meant. Yeah, I think he was seeing himself as the Jezebel. Right. And uh, quite possibly. I don't know. It's impossible to especially someone going through something as fucking awful as this. Uh, it, it's hard to say exactly what was going through their head. The guys in the band, they talked to Ian about it afterwards, you know, during rehearsal one night because they saw the red marks all over his arms. And Ian just explained that it was just, It was just one of those things where, you know, he was drunk and it got out of hand, like totally downplaying the self-harm of 
cutting himself up with a knife. Yeah. And, you know, we're not saying that everyone who self-harms is suicidal, but Ian had always romanticized suicide. Just a little bit. According to Debbie, he talked about it since he was a teenager, and he flirted with the idea of dying young at the height of public adoration, a la Jim Morrison. In other words, Curtis took Bowie's rock and roll suicide seriously and treated the first verse of the Bowie-pinned All the Young Dudes by Mott the Hoople with the same gravity. Now, when Bowie didn't kill himself at 25, like he wrote in the song, Ian only half-jokingly considered Bowie a traitor to his art for outliving the lyrics. That's one of the few scenes in 24-Hour Party People that actually happen. Mm. But remember, even though these were clearly romantic fantasies on Bowie's part, Ian Curtis was still just 22. Despite his great talent as a lyricist, he was still an immature kid with an incomplete brain. And at the same time, he was also dealing with wild fluctuations in brain chemistry due to both his illness and his medication. But even in those tumultuous times, Ian Curtis and Joy Division still managed to record their most famous song, perhaps the best tune written about an emotionally confusing love triangle since Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire. Joy Division's contribution to that story tradition was Love Will Tear Us Apart. That song is just, it's so good when you listen to it live. Yeah. Uh, just the live versions of it. It's just, it's amazing. It, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, uh, 
It's their most. I mean, it's Love Will Tear Us Apart. Yeah, Wait. yeah, that's what it is. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a one fucking. Of their cl- songs. It's a classic. I yeah. mean, it is just a. It's a classic of Western music. I mean, it, it'll go down <laughs> in history as just a fucking fantastic song. Absolutely. And uh, remember, in an earlier episode, when I said the band would write songs during rehearsals so they can have something new and fun to play at live shows. Well, that was this song. Love Will Tear Us Apart was one of those songs. Like, they just came up with it one day, just jamming along, each person doing their own part. I mean, it took a little while for them to figure everything out, but it was really, they were getting the idea while they were jamming. Like, Peter started playing a riff that Ian liked a lot, and he's like, that, use that, and keep it going for the rest of the song. I'll go home and arrange the lyrics for it. You know, kind of like like that popular, like, love will keep us together, but our, but our own twisted way. Yeah. Because, yeah, Steven said uh, one time they were talking about, uh, you know, that uh, Captain and Tennille song, they love. Love will keep us together. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, wouldn't it be great if we changed, like, a really popular song like that and then call it, like, love will rip us to shreds or something? <laughs> So they start when they finally got the song together, they started playing the song live around the time they went to Belgium. Remember the whole William S. Burroughs fiasco? Mm-hmm. It was around then where they started it. And then they recorded it a couple times in between tours. But Martin couldn't find the right sound for the song that he knew would be brilliant. Martin Hannett, the producer who made Unknown Pleasures, Unknown Pleasures. Exactly. Yeah. Martin even had Stephen play the drums separately again for the song. And after a very long night, Stephen finally got to go home and like... 2 a.m. and he was about to close his eyes and he gets a call from Martin. It's like, you got to come in and do the snare drum bit part again. It's not (laughs) there yet. You know, and so Steven gets up and goes back to the studio to finish it all night, which is why he says he hates listening to that version because his drums are so angry. When you hear the drums, he's hitting him while gritting his teeth in frustration. (laughs) And that's the thing that maybe that's probably what Martin wanted. He wanted to get Steven in bed and then out of bed because he said like his number one thing was clarity right you know he wanted to hear every little bit of that song Martin Hannon always said that for a recording to have like this long lasting effect and impact there has to be clarity and separation and that's the ironic thing about this song you know at least as far as separation goes because the guitar part and the bass part until the very very end when the guitarist starts doing that they're the exact same thing yeah <laughs> well Ian had to play it someone yeah. had to play yeah it's a, I mean it's like almost all Joy Division songs where it's you know it's pretty easy to play but yeah throughout most of the song the guitar part and uh, the bass part are uh, the exact same like like that because uh, Ian had to play because Bernard had to play synth yeah yeah. so it's like alright Ian you're up for it yeah. do it <laughs> and he always played his guitar way. he had this weird shaped guitar that we would play so high like it would be on his chest where he uh, kept the guitar and he looked very it looked weird but you know he still he had to have room for his arms to move around (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean he wasn't really used to using it very much but you know they kind of gave him like a little bit of encouragement like you can do this yeah so oh and during one of those recordings of uh, Love Will Tear Us Apart Tony Wilson showed up Remember the head of Factory Records? Yeah, Tony Wilson. Yeah, so Mr. He, Manchester. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the guy who's just like, you know, you, you could do whatever you want with the music and everything like that. Yeah. Uh, 
But he did try to help out a little bit with a strong suggestion, I guess you could say. Like, he brought in a double album of Frank Sinatra's, uh, like, kind of best of compilation songs. It was like a 40 greatest hits or something. It was one of those compilations that was released only in the UK. Yeah, and he was just like, you know, just check this out. Check out this crooning. It's got great crooning. <laughs> uh, Frank isn't the best singer in the world, right? He's known as, like, the one-note guy or something along those lines. But he delivers the emotion of the song within the spaces of the syllables as he sings them and it feeds into it more which is what what makes Frank Sinatra so great even if he's not the best singer in the world of course and so Ian started listening to Frank Sinatra he was like this is a good idea yeah and honestly like I can hear it especially when you of course you hear love will tear us apart I mean everyone knows that song so just kind of get that song playing in your head right now and listen to Frank Sinatra make the connection oh or nothing at all Half a love never appealed to me If your heart never could yield to me Then I'd rather, rather have nothing at all I said all Nothing at all If it's love I mean, when you think about, uh, yeah, think all and think love, like it's very similar. Yeah. That's sort of long, drawn-out syllables and, and not really deviating from one octave too much. It works. Yeah, it works beautifully. It works, especially, you know, Ian, uh, in the recording booth, like he would always record singing with his eyes closed, mm-hmm. which is, that's, that's the emotion that you feel from it. Like, who cares if you can't sing perfect? It's awesome. <laughs> it's great. And then as they were recording this song, they, there was a knock on the door. And it was like, hey, do you mind if these kids come in and watch a little bit? There's this new band from Ireland who are big fans of Joy Division and want to meet them. Uh, and the, the guys in the band are like, okay, yeah, come on in. Everyone shakes hands, whatever. Nice young guys who are soaking wet because it was raining all day outside. And they call themselves U2. <laughs> You too. They're probably like the stupid name. <laughs> and then there's Bono sucking up to Ian. Like, I really like what you do. And I really like the music. And you guys are so cool. Oh, God, this is so cool. <laughs> See, you two were big fans of Joy Division, but they, they also had another ulterior motive. Mm-hmm. They wanted Martin Hannett, you know, Joy Division's producer, to produce their first single, which he did, actually. Uh, 11 o'clock TikTok. Yep. Let's listen to a little bit of it. I would call this reggae goth. Uh, it's kind of a combination. I would say, for me, it sounds like a combination of like the police and the cure. It's very surprising for you too. But yeah, check it out. U2's first single.
not bad for a bunch of 19-year-olds. Really not bad at all. And, and back when, I think Bono was Paul. <laughs> I think that's how you say Paul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's you It's very surprising for you two. I'd never actually never heard that song uh, before we started working on this episode. I, I like it a lot. I'm not the biggest U2 fan in the world. Uh, but, of course, you know, and the funny thing about U2 is that after Ian Curtis died, uh, Bono in a particularly Bono-like fashion, approached Peter Hook and said, don't worry, I'll pick up where Ian left off. All right. (laughs) Thank you. Didn't make good on that promise, did you, Bono? I think they're one of the biggest bands of all time. (laughs) I mean, yes, I don't follow a lot of their music. I never really have. But you know what? I really respect the Joshua Tree. Yes, I respect. Say one nice thing about you too, Marcus. (laughs) I respect the Joshua Tree as well. Another one. That was mine. Uh, (laughs) uh, Oh, man. Uh, Numb is a good song. I like that one. But the Edge sang it. Uh, it was like 1992, something like that. I like that song. Okay. I like I like no. <laughs> <laughs> and so, with Love Will Tear Us Apart on the books, and with Ian spiraling further downward into an emotional and physical hell, Joy Division returned to the studio to record their second and final album, Closer. Or, interpreted another way, Closer. <laughs> This is like one of the first songs that they use like heavy synthesizers on it. I mean, you can hear it. (laughs) And this is like the beginning of a new era. Yeah. This is the future of music. And it started, you're hearing it right now. (laughs) And the funny thing is that Joy Division actually, when someone first suggested like, maybe you should put some synths on this. They're like, no. I know, right? That was like, Um, what, like a year and a half ago? Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like, yeah, the guys who would eventually be in New Order. Yeah, I'll never use synths. (laughs) 
<laughs> so they, the band, they decided to record closer in London at Britannia Row Studios, actually the famous recording studio that Pink Floyd built in 1975 that, according to Roger Waters, looks just like a prison. Because <laughs> it has this eerie, clinical, and cold feel to it, like all the state-of-the-art equipment, loads of electronics with several different rooms to experiment in, where, where you could send the sound through the PA system all over the building. Like, it was top-of-the-line professional working studio. It was. This was like Christmas for Martin Hannon. Yeah. You know, he, he couldn't wait to use all these top-of-the-line electronics and spend all night experimenting with different sounds for hours and hours. <laughs> and of course, of course, the guys in Joy Division would get bored sometimes, like when uh, Ian and Bernard would sneak into the front office and, and go through the receptionist Rolodex of names and phone numbers mm-hmm. and prank call people at four in the morning. And one of them poor bastards was John Peel himself. <laughs> Because it was fun. It's like, hey, his his refrigerator is running. (laughs) It is. Oh, good. All right. So I don't know why I thought that was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) I don't I'm sorry. And so the band, since they were recording in London, they rented two flats or apartments off Baker Street. (laughs) Yeah, I know what I know what flats mean. Well, this is for this is also for me. This is for me. Of course, of course, of course. Oh, Baker Street. (laughs) Yes, right off Baker Street to stay in while they recorded. Exactly. Yeah, Sherlock Uh, Holmes, all that bullshit. And so one of the apartments, flats, um, (laughs) was for Peter, Bernard, Stephen, and Rob, which is pretty much the party flat. And the other one was for Martin, Ian, and Anique. Ah. You see, Ian and Anique have still been seeing each other every chance they got for months and writing to each other, like we said before. Uh, This was finally their chance to kind of like shack up together, to spend some time together. Now, Martin Hannett, and continuing his unorthodox methods, replaced his car speakers with Oratone monitor speakers, the flat but faithful standard for studios everywhere. And I highly respect what he did here. The reason Martin did this was because he said that if he could make the mix sound good on cassette coming through the oratones in his car, then it would sound good on anything. I've always respected that so much. Yeah. If your if your mix sounds good on the poorest person that's able to listen to it, if like someone if your mix sounds good on that, then it'll sound good anywhere. Phil Spector used to do that too. Yep. Now, it was during the recording of Closer that Ian Curtis started pulling further away from Joy Division. He preferred going to art exhibitions with Anique and Genesis Porridge from Throbbing Gristle over hanging out with the boys, which didn't set well. You know, they were always kind of making, like, you know, they said he would actually walk out of the studio with his nose in the air. (laughs) Like, we're going to go to this thing. You guys aren't invited. Then, about halfway through the recording, Rob Gretton made things even more uncomfortable for everyone by ill-advisedly inviting everyone's girlfriends for a weekend visit. What a great idea, Rob. <laughs> what a great idea. It's hard enough with Anik stayed over and the other guys yelling Yoko Ono to her and Ian every chance they got. Because, you know, they definitely took the piss out of Ian and Anik's uh, affair, you know, by they would annoy them with jokes and pranks all the time. Yeah, I mean, when they yelled Yoko at her, it wasn't, uh, they were, it was good natured. It was more good natured ribbing than it was a full, like, fuck you. I think what Peter and Bernard did say is that 
really at the end of the day they were kind of jealous that Ian was shacking up with a cute girl because <laughs> they were they were mates they were guys yeah you know yeah of course uh, they're all 22 <laughs> yes and of course they're messing with them and trying to get in their way throwing beer at them while they're in bed actually one time Rob and Peter put cornflakes in their bed in a neat in, in Ian's bed and all over the sheets pillows and just crunching it up <laughs> which pissed off Ian even more you know creating like a bigger distance between him and his bandmates. Like this was already starting to happen. So anyway, Rob says, invite your girlfriends and wives over. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give them each 20 pounds for travel and you guys can finally spend some time with your significant others. Now Ian's situation was awkward. Yes. Because of Anique. So he kind of had to lie to Debbie about the whole weekend. Like he begrudgingly like told her about it. He's like, yeah, come if you want. Rob's giving everyone 20 bucks for travel and Debbie said but we're really broke I mean we have bills to pay and I can't afford a hotel room in London and Ian said okay fine because he neglected to tell her that they had two apartments rented already yes which is where all the girlfriends were going to stay anyways so Debbie stayed home she actually spent those $20 on the electricity bill no So Ian got off easy on that, but actually not really. No. No, because Peter's girlfriend Iris came, as well as Stephen's girlfriend and future wife and bandmate, Jillian Gilbert. Yeah. And Rob's partner, Leslie, whose idea it probably was to do the stupid thing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's not like... Debbie's not going to find out. I know. They talk to each other. Like, <laughs> like these women talk to each other. They're, she's going to find out that they were staying in flats and not hotels. I don't understand. I mean, but that's the other thing, too, is that, like, you know, it, he's not thinking rationally. Nobody's thinking rationally. Right. Yeah. It's like, uh, like, I forgot to tell Yazan that I was married. You know, on like, <laughs> the, like we see this on reality shows, yeah. uh, on like 90 Day Fiancés and yeah. Love After Lock. <laughs> We watch these all day long. Yeah, we're both yelling at the fucking TV like, they're going to find out. You're on television. <laughs> like, they're going to find out. And, uh, you know, and that's what the, we pointed out. like, of course, this is obviously fake. But people make these kinds of dumb decisions every single day. It happens. Yeah, yeah it happens. And, uh, you know, the weekend was not a success at all <laughs> <laughs> by any stretch. It actually started badly with some miscommunication and the girls waiting at the train station for hours until Stephen finally picked them up and they're so they're pissed already mm-hmm. and then they the girls they finally meet up with the guys they hang out they go shopping while they record it's all good the first day but the next morning they run into Anique yeah. who's staying in Ian's room <sighs> and the girls are like who's this and so the guys had to tell him like Ian had like a sort of girlfriend on the side and please don't tell Debbie and the girl's like the hell I won't <laughs> <laughs> you know take us back to the train station like every guy got in a fight with their girlfriends like do you think this is all right? Do you think this is okay? <laughs> yeah, you know, of course. Steven even said so in his bio. I'm not sure what we expected. <laughs> and we might have asked if Anique could hide in the dresser for like 36 hours, or at least we thought about asking her. Yeah. Because it just it just turned into a, a terrible disaster. It's the type of thing you do when you're 22. Yeah. yeah. I guess so. <laughs> yes. You haven't learned that lesson. That's when you learn that lesson. <laughs> This Joy Division episode of No Dogs in Space is coincidentally brought to you by BetterHelp. Listen, we've all got problems, but that doesn't mean that your problems should prevent you from reaching your goals or attaining happiness. But that's easier said than done, believe me. You're not alone in struggling, and you're not alone in asking for help. That's where BetterHelp comes in. 
BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not a self-help app. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a huge range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in some areas. That means specialized care that you don't have to drive two hours for. And it's not just the U.S. The service is available for clients worldwide. Simply log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. In return, you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. You can also schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room pretending to read men's fitness magazines ever again. It's more affordable than traditional counseling and financial aid is available. Just check out the reviews. One user said, your counselor understanding who you are on a more personal level truly allows them to help you tackle your life's challenges. So visit betterhelp.com slash no dogs. That's better H-E-L-P and join over 500,000 people in taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Plus with our special link, betterhelp.com slash no dogs, you can get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash no dogs. Now, as far as the songs went on Closer, they're filled with even more despair than what was heard on Unknown Pleasures. Written in the midst of a personal breakdown, Closer is Ian Curtis unloading months of self-torture into the album's lyrics. But at the same time, Closer was first and foremost an art record. Much more than Unknown Pleasures, Closer exists as an album, a fully realized work of brilliant art that demands to be heard in full. In fact, it's our favorite Joy Division album. It really is. I, I can't stop listening to it. I mean, Unknown Pleasures, I really enjoy. There's a lot of really great songs, but I don't finish it as much as I finish Closer. Yeah. I, from beginning to end. Yeah, it, it, it is an album, an, a capital A album. It's a fucking achievement uh, and deserves much more recognition than it gets. It absolutely deserves. I think at least that's what we think. We think that Closer deserves to be held higher uh, than Unknown Pleasures. I think the reason why Unknown Pleasures gets more uh, recognition is because the cover is better. <laughs> like it's, yeah, got a, be. it's got an iconic uh, album cover. Uh, but also, and- I think like learning the story, because I didn't know too many details about this story learning the story makes me love closer yeah i mean even outside of ian curtis's lyrics the band also did their best to take things to the next level when drummer stephen morris was afraid that the album was getting to be too danceable which is ironic for one of the future members of new order he created sounds that he described as sonically malevolent in the opening track he opted for a tone that he called hendrix jamming in a slaughterhouse And the result was the insanely confident opener, Atrocity Exhibition. This is the way you step inside This is the way you step inside 
uh, Peter and uh, Bernard, uh, they actually swapped instruments on that one. Really? Yeah, Peter played the guitar and Bernard played the, the bass. I mean, because th- they wanted to make it kind of interesting, you know? And also the fact that the whole song is built around the drum beat. I mean, this is like, I don't know. I, I guess they just like messing around and, and trying out things and experimenting. And it just ends up being a perfect song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, these guys were branching out all over the place. You know, Bernard Sumner, he was trying his hand at synth. You know, he'd started on Level Terrace Apart, but he took it a little bit further and Closer's grooviest track, Heart and Soul. But groovy is a, you know, I'm using that term loosely. Curtis's singing is not the strongest, particularly on this album, but the singing isn't the point. The point is the poetry. Actually, I mean, I think that Ian Curtis and Jim Morrison are two sides of the same coin, with one possessing the half that the other lacks. If you were to combine Curtis's poetry with Morrison's voice, you'd have an individual who would probably be considered one of the great artists of the 20th century. He'd be a fucking monster, (laughs) but he would be a great artist nonetheless. With fantastic hair. (laughs) You know, while they were recording, Ian actually told Bernard one night uh, during the sessions that he, like, Ian felt very strange recording this time around instead of as opposed to unknown pleasures because he felt like the words he was writing were writing themselves and it was just coming way too easy like he he used to struggle to finish songs before and now they were just all pouring out well he said that to that point i mean he said the part of the reason why it was so easy is because he felt like he was drowning uh that he felt like he was in he was caught in a whirlpool um, that was taking him down further and further. Uh, and it was very easy to write about that whirlpool. He was feeling it so strongly and feeling yeah. it in, in his fucking, you know, heart and soul. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he was feeling it in his fucking heart and soul. And uh, and so therefore it was, it was easy. In fact, I, but that's the thing is that 
Peter and Bernard and Stephen also said that Closer was a very easy album to write. The whole album just came. It's like it just arrived fully formed. But I think the reason why Closer is lesser known is simple. It lacks singles, even though Joy Division had no shortage of them. If they were a normal band who made normal decisions, <laughs> Closer would have included Dead Souls, Atmosphere, and Love Will Tear Us Apart, just as Unknown Pleasures should have included Digital, Glass, and Transmission. Although, you know, Unknown Pleasures does have the more obvious singles. It's got She's Lost Control and it's got Disorder. See, I think that had those songs been on those albums as opposed to some of the weaker tracks, then Joy Division's reputation as an overrated band wouldn't have existed, and they would therefore be more popular amongst casual listeners. But that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, I respect that. They're artists. They are, they are free to do right. whatever they want with their art. They are free to distribute it however they like. You know, they, they do, they can make whatever decisions they want about their art. Uh, but that, just it makes Joy Division a confusing band to get into. No, they're also confused themselves. <laughs> As it was, most people didn't even hear some of Joy Division's best songs until Factory Records released a compilation of the band's singles and EPs called Substance in 1989, eight years after Joy Division were over and done with. Substance was how I got into Joy Division. I found a, a cassette tape in uh, fucking Ralph's Records in Lubbock, where I found many a cassette tape. Aww. Also where I found my Sex Pistols fucking cassette, you know? But that's that's how I personally got into Joy Division. Listen to my fucking cassette player. Now to the other members of Joy Division, Stephen Morris in particular, recording Closer felt like the world was opening up. But to Ian Curtis, this album marked a narrowing of options. His epilepsy was only getting worse, and he'd in fact seriously hurt himself during the recording of Closer when he had a seizure in the bathroom, split his head open on the sink, and spent two hours unconscious on the floor before someone found him. And immediately after recording the album, Curtis had two seizures in one night while trying to play two shows. Yeah, I mean, well, they just spent three weeks recording an album, then barely a day or two goes by and they're booked for five gigs in four days straight. <sighs> this is hard on anyone, yeah. much less someone who's as physically and, and mentally ill as Ian was at that time. But, you know, Ian, as we said before, he kept pushing on because this is what he wanted for himself and, and for the band, for everyone. So on the third night, the band was booked for two shows. The first one being at the Rainbow Theater, where during their set, Ian had a seizure because of the stupid strobe lights again. Yeah. Ian actually felt he fell back into Steven's drum kit and the roadies had to run after and help him while Bernard and Peter took off their guitars and went over to pick him up and, and take him off stage. The audience were just very confused. They thought maybe this was part of the show. Yeah. And then when the seizure subsided, he said, okay, thanks. Let's head over to the next gig. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, no fucking way. You're not well. We, we should stop for the night. Look, even Rob agrees, you know, and but Ian kept insisting and he said, I'm OK. I'm OK. I want to do this. I need to do this. I, we, we booked these gigs. We're not going to cancel them. So they said, all right, well, if you're sure, let's go. So they head over to the next venue. They went on stage and played. And again, he collapsed from a seizure. His second one that night. And if that wasn't bad enough, he even insisted on performing again the next night. <sighs> and the band went with it because Ian kept insisting and refused to cancel anything. You know, which as you can see is how he's leading the path of destruction right now. Yeah. 
I mean, he is wanting to please everyone. He feels like he's disappointing everyone and he's trying to make everybody happy. He's trying to make his band members happy. He's trying to make Debbie happy. He's trying to make Anik happy. Like he's, he's, he feels like he's disappointing every person in his life and it's playing hell with his mental state. Right. Well, that, that's the issue. And that's something that we see in all the books and, and every band member says over and over again, like, really, we were so close to it. We didn't think like, this is just a band. Yeah. You know, this is just a stupid band. Like, but Ian's going through so much more that we should have just stopped. We should have taken a break, you know, like because he wasn't feeling well and, and he was ignoring that tiny voice in his head that says like, you should stop because you're hurting yourself physically and mentally, you know, maybe ask for help from the people who are generally concerned about you because ignoring your well-being it does not make you a hero. No. No, it, it just hurts everyone around you and I, I mean I'm not I'm not going to blame Ian for no. this decision because I I I know there've been times where I've I've you know performed really sick. I remember the one time that you stopped me from getting on a plane to Ohio to do a weekend at some stupid ha ha club when I had <laughs> like the flu or something. Yeah, you were deathly ill. You were literally holding me back. <laughs> so yeah, I'm but not... it was the right decision. <laughs> yes. So I, there's no blame here. You no. know, I mean, he was very committed to his work. Uh, but if anything, this could be like at, at least a somewhat of a reminder that helps that uh, like you know, taking care of yourself is just as important as taking care of like achieving your dreams. Of course. Yeah, you can't take care of anything else unless you take care of yourself. And because Ian was feeling really lost at this point, he he went around telling everyone different plans he had for the future because he he knew like something had to change. He told Steven he wanted to leave the band, move away with Debbie and Natalie, you know, their baby girl, and and open a bookstore. Another version he told is that he would move with Anique and open a bookstore or that he would quit music for a while and write a book. Uh, Genesis, for, you know, from Throbbing Gristle, said that they were planning to form their own band without Joy Division for a little while. And I think at one point, even during the, all of this, uh, the band even agreed on not doing any gigs for a year. None. Just recording to keep the pressure off Ian. But like a day or two later, you know, Ian would show up at rehearsal like nothing happened and be like, hey, when's the next gig, guys? Yeah. And they were like, oh, I, I, I guess we're going to do that then. Yeah. He's falling apart. Mm -hmm. But despite these obvious roadblocks, Joy Division were on their way to international recognition in support of the upcoming release of Closer and the Love Will Tear Us Apart single, Joy Division were booked for a full tour of America. At the same time, the walls were closing in on Ian Curtis, but nobody knew just how bad it really was. He never talked about what was going on because he was always trying to please everyone all the time. And therefore, no one knew that they needed to help. His epilepsy was getting worse. His personal life was in shambles. He wasn't taking care of himself. And the medication he was required to take for his own survival was playing hell with his brain chemistry. He's starting to show signs of bipolar disorder. Because of all this, on April 6, 1980, Ian Curtis attempted suicide by taking an overdose of phenobarbital at his home in Macclesfield. Yeah, Ian, uh, he swallowed those pills. Uh, and then a short time later, he seemed to change his mind. So he went up to Debbie, who was in bed, and told her what he'd done. And so Debbie got up and she called an ambulance. Uh, Ian was rushed to the hospital where he got his stomach pumped. Meanwhile, Debbie called Rob and told him what happened. Uh, she also found Ian's suicide note that said like a few things like, you know, there's no need to fight now and ending something with like, give my love to Anique. Yeah. Woof. Yeah. 
Now, unfortunately, nobody in Joy Division or anyone in the band's management knew how to deal with the suicide attempt because while they certainly cared for Ian's well-being, they just didn't take it seriously enough because everyone was too goddamn cool to deal with it. Well, I think... I think they kind of cared a little bit because, I mean, after rehearsal, Bernard and Ian walked home. And this is a little bit afterwards. And Bernard, like, purposely took Ian through a cemetery. And he pointed at the gravestones and told Ian, like, you don't want your name on one of these. Yeah. You know, it'd be a waste to do something like that. He thought that that could help because yeah. he was a young kid. He he wasn't equipped to deal with this kind of situation. But this is what he thought would, like, maybe help. But Ian didn't really respond to that. And also, while he was in the hospital... He called Anique and he told her, you know, how lost he felt, but that the whole thing was an accident and that it was just he was never going to do it again. It was never going to happen. He also said that he did change his mind because he was afraid that he would survive, but like really, really hurt himself, like mm -hmm. his organs with all, all, you know, with that overdose or anything. So he did say never going to happen again. I'm sorry. I'm OK now. Yeah. And I uh, honestly, I do not blame uh, the people around him for, you know, not saying the right thing because it's 1980. Nobody talked about this shit. Nobody talked about mental illness. Nobody talked about suicide. Like nobody talked about the right ways to handle it. No one talked about how you talk to your friend about it. Uh, it was just, you know, give him some tough love. Take him to a cemetery. Say, oh, don't fucking do that. You know, it's that doesn't help. Uh, but, you know, they were doing the best they could. And according to Peter Hook, as soon as Tony Wilson picked up Ian from the hospital, he drove him straight to the rehearsal space because the band had a gig coming up the next night at Darby Hall. And when Ian walked in the door, the band asked him if everything was all right. And he said, yeah, fine, let's carry on. So that's what everyone did. But when it came time to do the gig, Ian rightly decided he couldn't do it. And a disaster followed as a result. Yeah, I mean, well, that was kind of something between Rob, the manager, and Ian being like, well, I think something along the lines where Rob said like, well, we can still have the band go on, and then we have a lot of opening you know, bands, and then they can take turns singing. And Ian's like, you know what? I could do it. I, I, I can maybe do a couple of the slower songs, and then we'll get Alan Hempsall uh, to stand in. Alan Hempsall being the lead singer of Crispy Ambulance. Yeah, Crispy Ambulance is fucking great, by the way. Yes, really yeah. <laughs> And so they call Alan, and Alan's like, "Yeah, sure, I could totally do this. I can totally stand in for you." Like he was just he was just told that Ian was sick. So the show is set to begin, and Alan's there learning the lyrics when he sees Ian walking in which is a surprise to Alan. He's like, I thought you were sick, but he figured, okay, no one's telling me to do anything different, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do this thing. So the band Joy Division, they get up with Alan and they play digital, then Lovell tears apart, which made Alan realize at that moment what an amazing song that was. <laughs> I know, he's like, it's a weird place to be, but um, it, it's one of the greatest rock songs of all time. It's yeah. just, I just needed to tell someone. <laughs> so soon after that, uh, Ian felt like he was okay enough to do a few songs. So he walked up stage, told Ian, you know, I got this and performed two songs, Decades and The Eternal. Mm. Then Ian left and Alan came back with the lead singers of the other opening bands, you know, Section 25 and A Certain Ratio, and they all finished the set with a cover of Velvet Underground's Sister Ray. And then that was it. That was the show. They pulled it off somehow, except they didn't. No. No. You see, the crowd were like kind of happy with the show, but then when the show ended and they realized... What, what do you mean? We're not getting Joy Division, though? Yeah, two we're, songs with Ian Curtis, and that's it. We're getting a variety show? Uh, so they started to get restless, and someone in the audience threw an empty bottle at the chandelier that was hanging above the crowd, and the whole thing just exploded. Like, shards of glass just fell on everyone in the audience, 
Rob lost his mind and just dived into the crowd to find the asshole who threw that. Terry grabbed a mic stand and jumped in to help him too, like swinging the stand around. <laughs> Twenty, their other roadie, dived in too, trying to save Rob and Terry from the angry mob. <laughs> the riot was like in full force and the band didn't even know about it until Tony Wilson runs into the dressing room screaming like a little girl, everything's <laughs> fucked. Everyone's getting beaten out there. So Peter grabs an empty bottle by the neck and looks at Bernard, Steven, and all the other opening band members and say, let's go. And everyone looked at him like, no, are you fucking crazy? You fucking idiot, no. It's a riot. There's a riot out there. <laughs> And so Peter starts arguing with everyone while there's like bottles just been thrown from one side to the other right outside the door. And Peter's like screaming. He's like, Rob, Terry and Twinnie, those are our mates. They're out there. We need their we need to have their backs. And the rest of the guys, like especially Tony and everyone, they're like holding Peter back. It's like, no, it's not worth it. There's like 400 people out there. So they just threw Peter on the ground and they sat on him until he calmed down and they just rode out the riot until it was quiet out there. Yeah. And then the, at the end of the day, I mean, like they really got hurt. Like Terry and Twinnie, like they were trying to save the equipment. Twinnie even had to go to the hospital because his head was cracked open. It was really, it was just a disaster. The whole night was a disaster. Yeah. And I, and when Twinnie got to the hospital, they put him right next to the guy whose head he cracked open with a mic stand. <laughs> now, oh, God. <laughs> now, after everything died down a bit, Peter found Ian in a stairwell with his head in his hands. He'd only attempted suicide the day before. And here he was in the middle of a riot that he'd convinced himself was all his fault. It was another thing for him to blame himself for. Ian Curtis was in a brutally fragile state. And the decision to go ahead with the gig, in Peter Hook's estimation, made Ian Curtis cross a boundary from which he would never return. Meanwhile, Ian's marriage to Debbie was officially ending. Yeah, well, Debbie was, I mean, it'd been a time, it's been, it'd been a while already, and, yeah. but she was over it by then. The self-harm, the suicide attempt was one thing, but I think what really hurt her the most was uh, him just n never speaking to her about anything and also learning about the girlfriend's trip from the, from the girlfriends, of course, uh, that he hadn't ended it with Anique, although he promised he would. And Ian not even bothering to show up to his daughter's first birthday. A lot of those, there's just one thing after another after another. And the last straw was a few weeks later when she found out that he wasn't staying with Tony anymore, but crashing at Rob's place with Anik. You know, because Ian and Anik were determined to still stay together. This is when Debbie said, I, I've had enough. I need to take myself out of the equation. Yeah. And, um, and Ian had told her like pretty explicitly, like, I don't love you anymore. Like yeah. he, had, he had completely told her, like he had been upfront about that. Yeah, and she, I mean, she kept holding on for for many reasons, especially with their daughter. But she even said, so in, in her book, she says like, I was going to have to lose my husband to keep living again. Yeah. So she called up his parents and then her parents told them the truth of everything that's been going on and started filing for divorce. Yeah. And she was well within her rights to do that. Now, somewhat to Joy Division's credit, they did cancel some of their shows in the lead up to the American tour so Ian could get some rest. But it seemed like Ian was particularly bothered by this decision, although he never actually told that to anyone. The evidence for this assumption is that on April 25th, Ian traveled to London to see Anique before she left for a holiday in Egypt. But the night before seeing her, he went to the Scala Cinema for one of the shows that Joy Division had canceled. According to witnesses, Ian showed up at 1.30 a.m. 
sat at a table alone, wrote furiously in a notebook for the duration of three songs during the band that replaced Joy Division, and left without talking to anyone. Soon after, on May 2nd, Joy Division played their final gig at High Hall in Birmingham. It was their biggest crowd yet, and on that night, Joy Division debuted a new song, one of Ian Curtis's last. Eventually, Peter Hook and Bernard Sumner would rework Ceremony as a New Order track, their first single after Joy Division ended. This, however, is how Joy Division played it that night with Ian Curtis. Yeah, uh, they recorded their last concert. And also with a bunch of other unreleased material from the studios, they, they put together a compilation album uh, called uh, Still. Mm-hmm. That that came out in 1981. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. It's, yeah. it's a great artifact. Now, even though the band was playing this gig, watching Ian on stage, not for the possibility, but for the inevitability of a seizure, a rescheduling of the American tour was out of the question. As far as the band knew, They were all about to realize the dream every UK band has, the American tour in the land of Iggy, Morrison, Reed, and Burroughs. But unfortunately for us all, that tour wasn't meant to be. On May 18th, 1980, on the eve of the American tour, Debbie Curtis came over to the house she and Ian once shared in Macclesfield, where Ian was waiting. He asked her to drop the divorce, but at the same time, also told her he'd spoken to Anique earlier that evening. Debbie exhausted from working all day as a waitress and from raising a one-year-old daughter, told him no, using the correct reasoning that Ian would no doubt change his mind by the next morning. Finally, Ian told her to leave and not come back until 10 a.m. the next day because by then, he'd be gone. Too tired to stay with him for the night or even argue, she did what Ian said. After Debbie left, Ian watched a Werner Herzog tragicomedy called Strozik, and alternated between drinking black coffee and liquor. He then wrote a long, contradictory letter to Debbie. While it made no mention of suicide, he did write that he wished he was dead. He then walked to the kitchen and took the rope that held up the kitchen clothes rack in his hands. He wrapped it around his neck and kneeled on the ground, slowly choking himself to death as his favorite album, The Idiot, played in the background.
So Ian committed suicide on Saturday night into Sunday morning. And uh, on Friday, the day before he killed himself, the guys went shopping to get new clothes for this American tour. You know, later that night on that Friday, Peter drove Ian back to his parents' house where he was staying. And the whole way there, they were laughing and joking around and, and just amazed that they were going to go to America on Monday. And they were even yelling in the car and jumping up and down in their seats. They're like, yeah, America, I can't believe this. And then the next morning on Saturday, Stephen and Ian went back to the mall so Ian could exchange some clothes that he got. You know, he just couldn't make up his mind on what he wanted. Yeah. Later in the afternoon, Stephen dropped Ian off, who said he might go see his daughter Natalie one more time before flying to New York City on Monday. So Bernard had plans with Ian to go out on Saturday into Sunday, hanging out by the river at a friend's house and do fun things like water skiing because the weather was particularly beautiful that weekend. But Ian canceled on Bernard because he decided he was going to go to Macclesfield to see Debbie and talk to her before leaving town. The next day on Saturday afternoon, Peter was, he was with his partner Iris having lunch when he got a call from the police. They were trying to get a hold of Rob Gretton. And Peter asked, like, what for? And the detective told him that Ian had killed himself the, the night before. So Peter hung up the phone and just sat back down. His partner asked him, like, what was that all about? And Peter said, like, oh, it's the police. Ian's dead. And just went back to eating his lunch because he didn't know what else to do. Yeah. He finally got the nerve to call Stephen, who was so numb from the news, he couldn't quite process it and even called his girlfriend Jillian, telling her, maybe it's all fine. You know, it'll all work out. This will all work out. He just he couldn't imagine how it, how it wouldn't. Yeah. And then later, much later that afternoon, Bernard, who's still at his friend's house by the river, uh, gets a call from Rob. And Rob tells him the news about Ian. And Bernard couldn't quite sort it out in his head either. He was thinking maybe he tried to kill himself again, but he was okay. Like, maybe he was okay. But no, it, it was certain that he was dead. And uh, Bernard, with the phone in his hand, he, he slid down the floor, just unable to speak. He couldn't. He said he said he really didn't talk again until the funeral. Yeah. And so on May 23rd, Ian Curtis was cremated. And Factory Records had their own wake by holding a screening of the Sex Pistols film The Great Rock and Roll Swindle at their offices. By accounts, everyone put on a brave face, being careful to not show too much emotion. Everyone wanted to be too cool for the scene, which they now fully admit was what prevented all of them from helping Ian in the first place. As far as Peter, Stephen, and Bernard went, the last thing they said to each other at Ian's funeral was, see you at practice. Peter then went home and wrote the riff for the song that would open their next album, Dreams Never End.
This is such a Manchester song. Really? Now, is. now I know what the Manchester sound <laughs> is like. Yeah. No, it's very much a Manchester song. Now, closer. Joy Division's last album was released on June 18th, 1980, exactly one month after Ian Curtis's suicide. And the album cover was, to say the least, unintentionally provocative. Well, earlier in the year, while they were recording at Britannia Row Studios, they met up with Peter Saville to talk about the album cover. So Peter was like, what do you want me to do? And they're like, I don't know, show us some stuff. And so Peter pulled out this like French magazine that he had and on it was a bunch of black and white photos of funeral stone statues photographed by Bernard Pierre Wolf. And uh, the guys just kept flipping through the pages and then they just picked one they liked. And they're like, that was it. Yeah. That's the one that we like. Now, fast forward to this moment <laughs> when Peter and Tony and everyone at Factory hears news about Ian and Peter just sits up straight like, oh, crap, I should tell the band that there's an Italian tomb on the cover of their album. <laughs> You know, they're yeah. just like they had to have emergency meeting, emergency yeah. meeting, you know, and they all talked about it. They, they all considered like maybe we should change it because maybe people would think it was in bad taste or, or money grab. But they ultimately decided to go with the cover because that's what Ian wanted too. Ian was there when they picked it. Yeah, he helped tra- choose it. Exactly. And when it came out, everyone said about the cover, this is in bad taste. <laughs> is this a money grab? <laughs> And the guys are like, well, you know, when we try to offend people and then we try not to offend people, we just can't win. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an iconic cover. I mean, it, yeah, it, it's it, beautiful. It's a beautiful cover. Uh, and it explains the album perfectly. It tells you everything you need to know about what you're going to get into. But even though the album sold well and the reviews were almost unanimously positive, the surviving members of Joy Division weren't interested. In fact, when Peter heard on the radio that Love Will Tear Us Apart had hit number 13 on the charts, he turned it off before the song even played. Instead, he, Bernard, and Steven only wanted to move forward. Unlike the vast majority of bands, their second project was just as, if not more respected than Joy Division, at least in some circles, and they were vastly more popular. I'm talking, of course, about New Order. You know, later on when Joy, uh, not Joy Division anymore, New Order, uh, owned the, you know, the, that disco club, the Hacienda. Uh, it's just kind of ironic that they just made music that's just so good to dance to while on ecstasy that 
you just don't buy drinks, therefore <laughs> making them go broke in the process <laughs> at the club. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that, that song, I mean, it, it's so iconic. Like, we didn't even have to get to, how does it feel? Like, we didn't even have to get to that part. I want to, but <laughs> maybe another time. Well, the song's seven and a half minutes long. Uh, <laughs> like, it, it's it's got so, it's got different, like, each, it's got three iconic sections. You know, the beginning, the do. Like that that's an iconic section. The um you know, when you know Bernard Sumner comes in with his vocals, the how does it feel? That's an iconic section. And then, you know, the last third of the song. That in itself is also iconic. It's three <laughs> iconic songs in one. Uh it's a fucking achievement. Yeah. So what happened at you know, as you said, after Ian's funeral, they decided, well, yeah, let's meet at rehearsal. Like, I mean, what else can we do? I mean, this is all we know. Like, they these guys, remember, they had just given up their day jobs. Uh, they were already professional musicians, and they liked working together. They, they, they had a good dynamic together. And so they figured, well, let's form a new band. Uh, you know, since Joy Division died the day Ian died, so it makes sense just to start over. So they needed a name again. Right. So they started throwing funny names at each other. Uh, Steven made everyone laugh by throwing like, how about Stevie and the JDs? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, "Ooh, OK, we'll put it on the list. We'll put it on the maybe file. <laughs> and so Rob, you know, he read an article title and he said, how about the new order of the Cambodian front? <laughs> and everyone's like, OK, new order it is. <laughs> so Stephen. Peter and Bernard, they set out to write new songs for their new band. They weren't going to play any more uh, old Joy Division songs, except for Ceremony and In a Lonely Place, because those were the last two songs they wrote with Ian. And then afterwards, they honestly sat down together and thought, like, OK, we need more songs. We got to we got to move forward. We had to continue on with this. Uh, how the hell do you write a song? Like, <laughs> what, I mean, like, as far as lyrics go, like, what do you write about? Like, they had no idea, yeah. like, how to do this, you know, because Ian was he was the poet of the group. Yeah. And they also but also he was the singer. They needed a singer and getting someone new just didn't feel right to them. So Bernard, Peter, and Steven took turns singing, actually, at rehearsals, at demos, uh, live. Uh, you know, Rob eventually booked them a, in a couple of local places around Manchester. And then soon they went to America because they figured if we're going to start over, let's try to work it out where people don't know who we are. <laughs> <laughs> so they did somehow make it to America. Uh, and they played a few places like Haraz in New York City and Maxwell's in uh, Hoboken, New Jersey. Uh, then later in the year, they added Jillian Gilbert, remember Steven's girlfriend, uh, future wife, to the lineup, and New Order was complete, or as complete as they could be. <laughs> but that's all, the rest is all New Order history. Yeah, I mean, and, and they definitely learned how to write songs. Yes, I mean, I mean it just, you know, it, it took a while. I mean, Blue Monday, Bizarre Love Triangle, True Faith, Regret. I mean, like these are like, let's just one more song. One more, let's one just more, one more. One more. Like, just, you know, you know this song.
then they decided to go with Bernard as the lead singer. <laughs> I also forgot that you did not grow up in America. I, I did not hear that song at all growing up. No. See, for me, that's childhood. No, like, nothing. I remember that song from, like, being a kid, and, like, that song was such a massive hit. Well, have you heard of La Bamba? <laughs> That's what we know. It was also a massive hit. I grew up in Texas. Remember? I know, right? <laughs> oh, I know. We've bonded over Selena. Yes, we. Oh, God, oh, we have. Man. With an S. <laughs> now, concerning Joy Division's legacy, it's hard to overstate just how much of an effect they had on music. The sounds created for unknown pleasures were heard in almost every new wave hit that came after. And building off what they'd already done, the surviving members helped shape electronic music with new order. Culturally, their songs reached surprising corners of British society, including the adaptation of Love Will Tear Us Apart into multiple football chants. Yeah. Like this surprisingly touching rendition at a Man U match. Thank you for calling it football. You're welcome. <laughs> I mean, I don't know who Giggs is. I'm sure all the Man U fans out there know exactly what they're talking about. But yeah, they're singing Giggs Will Tear You Apart. They're adapting it into something different. But even so, that's almost 75,000 fans all singing Joy Division's music. But Ian Curtis was a Man City fan. <laughs> um, well, you know what? I'm sure he would have been proud anyway. I'm anyways. sure I'm he would have sure. been fine if it was Man U instead of Man City. I think oh, it's damn it. fine. <laughs> And as far as Ian Curtis's suicide goes, it isn't something to be romanticized, but it also isn't something to be maligned either. It simply is. It happened. As Chris Ott put it, Ian Curtis just lost. He wrote beautiful, truthful poetry about depression, isolation, and despair as a result, but it wasn't worth his life because he's dead. Ian Curtis doesn't know that we're talking about him right now because he is dead. And I guarantee you his family would choose Ian over closer. And his bandmates would choose the same had they known the stakes. Really, what they needed more than anything was for Ian to tell them that he couldn't continue down the path he was walking. And Ian's suicide is all the more tragic for his feelings being temporary. Those feelings would have changed. They would have matured. And I can say this because it happened to me. I had many of the same feelings when I was his age. And I still struggle with a lot of the same problems. But one of the things I've realized in writing this series is that those feelings are far in the past, belonging to a person I don't recognize anymore. So for the sake of everyone out there going through something similar, if you're having a hard time, stop putting on a brave face for everyone else and stop suffering because you think you deserve it. If you need help, ask for it. Demand it if you have to, even if you think no one is going to understand. Set aside any romantic ideals you have about the suffering artist and at least try to make things better. Because in the end, all that really matters is the world you make for the people around you. And that world ends the moment you leave. And that's Joy Division Part 4. That's it. <laughs> that's it, everybody. Wow. Thank, thank you very much for listening. Um, it, it was It's a ride. It, yeah, it definitely was. This is one, one of the... 
the just the most emotionally wrought series uh, we've ever done. It was very difficult. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was highly difficult. Every single series had uh, some sort of difficulty to it in, in its own unique way, and yeah. this one had the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, we're almost done with the punk series as well. Uh, we got one more band. Well, before our last band, which is going to be a surprise, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to have a little, uh, just kind of like a little mini episode for you guys for uh, about a band that uh, we've been uh, bringing up a lot. Yeah, a band that we brought up a lot in our uh, Dead Kennedy series uh, that we think deserves uh, a lot more attention. Uh, I'm just going to say techno punk. Yeah, uh, it's some cool stuff. And I also want to say, like, Darla, you did a fucking fantastic job on oh, this one because uh, d- from what uh, from what I can tell from the emails I've gotten. People, y'all think that I do the majority of the work on this show. I do not. Well, th- that's the funny thing. <laughs> so many people are like, Marcus, you're brilliant. Marcus, you're great. Your researching <laughs> skills are amazing. And you know, the funny thing is, is like, yeah, I agree. Marcus is brilliant. You're oh, great. Well, thank you. But you're the, married to me. You have to say that. But then again, if you're going to tell us about how great the research is and give it all to Marcus, maybe do a little bit of research yourself <laughs> to know that I read all the books yeah, Karen, and I appreciate all the nice things that people have written. Of Thank course. You. Yeah, no, no, no. Everyone, like, uh, every, everything that everyone uh, has written uh, I think is true, but it's just directed towards the wrong person. <laughs> well, it's, it's all directed towards me when it absolutely should be directed towards Carolina. Y'all really don't know how hard uh, she works on this show every single week. Uh, she kills herself for the show to make sure that uh, everything we say is correct. Make sure as all best the, as we can. As best as it. we can, you know, to make sure all the timelines are correct and to make sure we know what the hell we're talking about every single week. She does a fantastic job and I just want to make sure everyone knows that it is her that is doing it. Thank the, you. The credit, the you credit goes to her. You also have a business to run. You have a whole other podcast. <laughs> hey, I still How work. would you have time? It would be physically impossible for you to do that. I mean, I'm the one reading all the books because of that. That's We work as a team. We work Our, as we a have, team. We have a marriage of a team. Yeah. Like, of every, you know, that's how we do things. I still do stuff. I still write. You know, that, yeah, of course. I, I still work write, my ass off on the show. You write 50% of the script. Yeah, yeah, of course. yeah. Yeah, I still work my ass off. But for as far as uh, research goes, it is Carolina. So uh, make sure uh, I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew that oh, because I don't you. like taking just drive credit. it in one more time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like taking credit for work I didn't do. I get that. I get that completely. <laughs> and you deserve it. You yes. absolutely you absolutely deserve the recognition. So give it to her, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> All right. Give it to me. <laughs> uh, and uh, if you guys want a uh, no dogs in space T-shirt, they're fucking sick. Go on over to lastpodcastmerch.com. Those are available uh, over there. Yeah. Uh, they're really they're just great t-shirts in general. And uh, of course, we appreciate everyone who's uh, bought a t-shirt so far. We really yes. appreciate the support. Yes, thank you so much. I've been seeing some of them on Instagram. Thank you for tagging us. I, I love looking at it. This is really cool. It's our dog on your shirt. How cool is that? Like, how did that happen? She doesn't know. She has no uh, idea how oh. important she is. <laughs> Poor little Georgie. And oh. also, uh, you know, if you are a musician or a singer or or, or you're in a band and, and you make noise, you make some sort of art noise sounds uh, and you want us to play at the end of every episode that we have, uh, please be sure to send us a link or something to uh, space at gmail.com, you know, uh, a band camp, a Spotify, a link to whatever, whatever you can. And um, we'd more than love to 
play your song at the end of the episode. We have a band. We have a band that we actually kind of, kind of know. Oh, well, we, we ran met in, them once. We met them at Manitoba's. Yeah, they were really nice. <laughs> they were super nice guys. Yes, Manitoba's uh, RIP. That was the bar in uh, the East Village uh, that was owned by Handsome Dick Manitoba of uh, the Dictators. It was our favorite bar in New York City. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it's it's gone now. Uh, before COVID, uh, it was just, you know. Yeah, this was a while this back. This is a while back. But uh, yeah, RIP uh, Manitobas. Many good nights had there. But the band this week, they're a Brooklyn band. They're called Depression Tropical. Or oh. sorry, Depression Tropical. Depression Tropical. Thank you. Yeah, they're. <laughs> yeah, apparently the, the drummer and lead singer from Mexico, the other guitarist uh, is uh, from Israel. Uh, it's surf punk, it's fucking great. Uh, I love it. I'm so happy that we're able uh, to play this band. Check them out over on Spotify, uh, of course. And also, don't forget that every single episode that we put out has a playlist to go along with it. Uh, So if you want to hear the songs that we played on this episode and every episode that we've put out so far, uh, just go uh, search my name on uh, Spotify. Find my profile and all of uh, the uh, songs are there. All the playlists are there. My name is Marcus Parks. Yes, yeah. I mean, I hope we gathered. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not everyone has been listening for years and years and years. We're hoping to get some people outside, you know. Like new listeners. Yeah. Um, I'm in love with this band. Uh, so check them out. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks uh, with a mini episode. And then uh, after that, it's going to be our final band for this season. Not the final band of the show, but just the final band for this season. Uh, and of course, thank you all so much for listening as always. Thank you so much for your support. We got the sweetest fans. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. 